Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, technology, journalism, all different kinds of stuff. We are here on Radio Row at Super Bowl in Miami. I'm Joe Favorito, along not just with Scott Rosner, but with LJ Holmgren. LJ, welcome back again. And Scott? Great to be here, as always. Hi, Joe. How are you? Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the, how, how should we put this, Scott? Journalism, where we are with the state of the NFL, um, media interaction with Judy Batista. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So, really great to see you guys. Yeah, as I told Judy before, long-time admirer of her work for the New York Times. First time, I mean, long time? Is that first, what you're saying? First time, <laughs> long time. So, uh, Thank even, you. Even, even earlier, visiting relatives. I remember back, you know, coming down here. You visited and, Judy's relatives? No, visiting, <laughs> visiting my relatives, Joe, and reading her in the Miami Herald, yeah. and, you know, like with a great back lineup, of, back in the day, great lineup of, of, of columnists and reporters. Crazy. Yep. So, do you still enjoy what you do, even though it's evolved? And how much has it evolved? Oh, God. Just, just in terms of storytelling. Oh, it's so. evolved. I could never have imagined the way we do our jobs now. I mean, mm. first of all, how could you have ever imagined Twitter, right. just for one right. small example? And why would you have wanted to imagine Twitter in many cases? But, um, I mean, you're still telling stories. It's, I feel like it's just changed in the way you're telling them, I you know, in many cases, you're telling them um, in shorter blurbs, mm-hmm. um, but you're still just telling stories. That's still the job. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I could never have imagined all of the things. It, it seems now you need to be more multidisciplined than sure. you were when we all started in the business. I mean, when I started, I thought I was going to write and do nothing but writing for the rest of my career and now it's I mean nobody with any sense would ever go into the business thinking you're only going to be a writer for the duration of your career because you're playing column inches to people today right right like I still ask our editors like how long do you want this to be and they're like it's the internet like you can write it can be as long as you want it to be it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter Um, Mm -hmm. yeah it's changed completely so tell us about what you're doing how your job works out today so I still do mostly writing. That's still, and that's what I want. I love, I still love to write. And so I still do that. And that's not that much different than writing for the New York Times, right? Except that you do have sort of these more fluid deadlines. They don't really exist and you don't really have column inches um, for better or worse. Uh, and then there's the TV element and that is a totally new thing that I had sort of started to do a little bit of when I was at the New York Times for ESPN. Um, and now I do that as a regular part of the job. And then there's other stuff I do inside the NFL, and that's obviously television. Um, and, and all of that is great. Like, I, I think what I'm struck by about at least my own career path is, like, none of this was planned. Like, the different parts of it were not planned. It just happened. Certainly part of it is precipitated. It chooses you. It chooses you. It, yeah. And certainly part of it is precipitated by the yeah. changes in the newspaper sure, industry. Of course. Um, which sort of forces you to think about other things. So, but from a writing perspective, and you've been doing this for a long time, right? You, you turned pro in, in this world. And <laughs> in, in, in how long ago? Uh, nine, I graduated from college in 1988. Right. Uh, from the University of Miami and, um, you know, started working at the Miami Herald as a news reporter. So you're, you're 30 plus years Ugh. into your writing career. That, was, so that we, was interesting, Scott, that you had to go to a number, but that's yes. a good no, but, but the point is that you've really mastered your craft, right? I mean, you're... Uh, you're, you're I don't know about that. Uh, I don't know, feel like you ever master writing, right? You can always be... 
You're always tweaking okay. it. Okay, well then you're really, really close. If you haven't mastered, you're you're like on the precipice Thank of, you. of it. But you've done that. How do you begin to master the other forms that you've gotten mm-hmm. into? How do you begin to master storytelling in 140 characters? Oh my gosh. Um, how do you begin to master <laughs> being on television, right? And and all of the other pieces that go with that. Well, storytelling in 140 characters or whatever it is now on Twitter is a... First of all, I think it requires much more caution than most of us apply to it. Like, I am constantly deleting stuff and stopping myself from tweeting. Even tweeting news, I think you have to you have to frame things. You don't have much room for context the way you do when you're writing an 800-word story. You have, you have to be really careful about the words you choose. Television is just an entirely new thing. I mean... I, the best advice I got, I think, when I went to um, the NFL Network, John Clayton from ESPN, said, "It's just like it's just like you're talking to us. It's just you already know the information. You're just having a conversation. You've got to think of it that way. Don't think of sort of making a presentation. Just think of like you know, you're talking to your colleagues, the, you know, about this crazy game you just watched. Um, and so that's sort of what I try to keep in mind whenever I'm doing TV. And then." Um, well, uh, Joe knows this. I, I recently helped Jim Rooney write a book about yeah. his dad, and that's another form of storytelling, too. That's a much longer... Um, that was much closer to doing newspapers, but just expanded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the immediacy of coverage. Uh, do you feel the pressure more now than you did before, even though it was highly competitive for what you were doing, and you, know, you, were, you were influencing millions of people then, just as maybe not as many, but in a different form now. Um, how is the immediacy now, even without deadlines, it's still, I mean, the deadlines are could be whatever pops up now. Are you able to, how do you manage that? Well, I, in my specific role, I am not like a beat right. reporter, right. right? So when I was at the Times and I covered the Jets, yeah. and you were on the beat, even though we didn't have Twitter, even blogs hadn't really taken off then. So you were still just writing for the print product. That was much more intensive, like breaking news, ah, your hair's on fire, you've got to write, and you've got a deadline. That felt much more intensive. Now I'm much more the sort of columnist role where you're, the whole role is to take a step back and, you know, theoretically give more perspective. It's big picture. It's much more big picture, so you're not as frantic, although, I mean... Twitter. Certainly, Twitter forces you to be a little bit more on it. Um, How do you do on TikTok, by the way? I'm just kidding. (laughs) Somebody, my 15-year-old has to explain TikTok to me. I can tell you that. (laughs) Me too. Yeah. So over the years, what story has stuck with you or stands out as part of your career, whether it's a pivotal moment or one that you just personally love? Is there one you share with us? Um, I would say the whole, this is going to sound crazy, but the entire 2007 season from beginning to end, the 2007 um, season was the year that the Patriots were undefeated. It started with Spygate, if you remember that. Then they were undefeated and they were unstoppable. And then all of a sudden the Giants beat them. And that whole season beginning to end was fascinating because I spent a lot of my time in New England covering the Patriots and thought they were unbeatable. And then you get to the playoffs and it's like, wow, the Giants. Like the Giants are a wild card team. They're just not that good. And then I covered what I still think is my favorite Super Bowl, the Giants win, and that was my favorite. Is that David? Ta- that was David Tyree. No, David Tyree. I mean, I, re- I remember it's the, the last catch he ever made. 
Um, yeah, right. Weird, weird right? right? Right, the last catch you ever yeah. made. Um, and, and a play that the entire season didn't work. Right, that exactly. Every time, when they ran it in practice the week of the right. Super Bowl, the defensive players were lined up, and they were laughing and telling them, hey, throw that out in a somewhat more colorful way. Right. That play's not going to work. Right. right? Um, but I, I actually have another favorite story, if I can t- yeah. add this. I actually, strangely enough, I, when I look back, I enjoyed covering the lockout um, because it was completely different. I mean, suddenly you, you morph into a labor reporter, right? Like, what am I doing covering labor? Like, I'm talking to labor lawyers all day. Um, and that was interesting just because it was so different, and it required you to learn stuff on the fly and then distill it for fans. And I was working at the New York Times, and as it was explained to me by the editors, we have a lot of lawyers as readers. So, like... They're really paying attention to what you write, which, you know, really forced you to absorb very new information um, and write it. I, I was on the. I really talked to so many lawyers during that period, and I kind of enjoyed it because it was totally different and out of my purview. And I hope I never have to do it again. But it was interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry. I know. I'm, I'm very sorry. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> there was somebody. By the way. There was someone, as we've been on this trip, said, called them liars. Oh, I would not say not, that. I was relying was completely on the lawyers to explain yeah. things. Hi, okay. can you tell what do you do? She's like, what do you do? I'm a lawyer. She's like, oh, you're a liar. Oh, yeah. no. Unbelievable. No. But she showed us where to get coffee. It's unprovoked so. personal that attack. That is not, yeah, that's not kind at all. practice, really. <laughs> right. um, Judy, as you go through passing through a lot of the NFL teams and, and players and personalities these days, there's, there's such a, a wide range of characters. Who are some of the ones that you enjoy being around and who really understand the role of kind of what, quote, media is, although everybody with a phone is media now? Are there some that stand out that people may not know about? Well, I think my favorite ever was Peyton Manning, who really understood it and really knew how to use it to his advantage. Very smart. Very, I mean, obviously very smart. Um, but really knew how to use the media to his advantage. And he was always great to me. Um, but he was also, I mean, he was somebody I loved to cover because I loved to watch him play and I loved to watch him talk about it because he would be happy to talk to you about football 24 hours a day. And he was also, he's also a great gossip. Like, he loves NFL gossip. So you would run into him in a stadium and he'd be like, hey, Judy, yeah. What's up with Mark Sanchez? You know, hey, Judy, is Rex Ryan going to get fired? I mean, literally, that would be the conversation. Um, so that, he's, he, to me, is the, you know, everybody should be like Peyton in terms of how to deal with the media and how to manipulate the media to sure. their well, advantage. Very so savvy. savvy. So savvy. And now, I look, I love covering the young guys in the league, right? Like, I think Patrick Mahomes, aside from being ridiculously talented, is also just a really nice nice kid. He's a really good yeah, he, guy. Got, and gets it. I mean, he, he totally gets we, it. He totally gets it. And, you know, having grown up professional athlete father, right. totally. he, I think he totally understands it. I mean, I, I think he's the guy yeah. that could take the big leap and be the face going forward. I think so. And you heard Roger Goodell said it in his press conference, like, Patrick Mahomes anywhere in the league. Forget about that it's a small yeah. market. Anywhere yeah. in the league is a good thing for the NFL. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you. I think he will be the the next face of the NFL whenever Brady, you know, retires. Yeah. yeah. 
or walks in and out of a picture. Or whatever that meant, going. right? I was just talking to one of the Boston reporters a few minutes ago, like, what does that mean? You know, they spent all of last night trying to figure out, like, what's, what was that? Where's he going? In right, out. right, right. Exactly. He's bought houses in seven cities. Literally so trying to, like, what's the angle of his leg? We the way his leg night. is bent. Yeah. Like, there was, which way is he walking? There was a bit of forensic attack at Columbia House last night. Like, what? Trying to figure out what which way his foot was going. Exactly. Scott Abstain. I, I was the, playing the Al Davis role. Uh, in, in <laughs> right. Walk out of the room. Absolutely. Right. I just abstained 31 to 1, 31 0 with one abstention on the abstention. Right. Uh, Judy, for a long time, obviously, there has been, believe it or not, gambling around professional really? football. Yes, really. Uh, gambling is now being embraced around professional football in various <laughs> stages and various times. There's a team moving to a city in Nevada. Um, how do you think that that impacts the league, not from a, really from a business perspective, but from a fan engagement perspective? Well, gambling has always really? benefited the right. league, right, right. from right. a right. from a fan engagement. I mean, that's right. fantasy football, right? right. That right. all Ga- gambling in general. Legalized anything. gambling is yeah. the new fantasy, right? Um, look, for those of us who've been covering the league for twenty years, when gambling was, you know, a sin. Like, I just sort of laugh. Every, yeah. Right, yeah. like, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 20 minutes ago, yeah. right, Tony Romo was not allowed to do that convention yeah. in, a, in a casino. That's and right. now it's like, you know, DraftKings has their name on everything. Right. Um, so I kind of laugh and roll my eyes. But, I mean, look, it's a huge thing for fan engagement. It has always been. And it's going to be a gigantic resource, financial resource for them. No question. Once they fully get their arms around it and fully... Uh, get in bed with it. It's going to be a gigantic resource. Other now. other big picture questions. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking to various folks uh, during our time here on Radio Row in Miami uh, about player health and safety. Mm-hmm. Right? So greatest existential threat to the business of the NFL, the biggest sports business in the world. No question. Uh, going forward. Where are you on this? How do you see that issue? Well, I think it's it's a continued threat, um, and I, I, and I think it will continue to be. I I believe they are making good faith efforts to uh, make the game safer um, against. And look, some of the efforts are met with an awful lot of resistance from the players themselves. Um, I think they are applying a lot of money and a lot of research to try to figure out a way to make it safer. But let's be real. I mean, this is a game played by really fast, gigantic people crashing into each other. It's, there's only so much you can do to make it safe. And everybody sort of has to come to grips with that risk. The players and the fans. Like, what are we comfortable What are we comfortable applauding? You mentioned collective bargaining uh, and the lockout. Yes. Um, being one of your favorite things to cover. Um, <laughs> in, in the, the past. past. In the past. Only in the past. In the past. <laughs> right. I used to like eating pizza all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, spent, I spent a lot of time talking to one of your colleagues on background during all that. Interesting. Time, right? Where do you think we're headed in the next collective bargaining? You know, there's there's all sorts of backroom things going on right now. Negotiations, some some use of the media, right, mm-hmm. in the negotiation process. Um where do you think we wind up with the next collective bargaining agreement? I think there's going to be one f- fairly soon. Uh, I think before the new league year starts in the middle of March, I think there'll be another. Well, I, think I think there's, there's a, a clock ticking from yeah. the union's perspective well, they, as well. From both sides. From both sides. Neither they, they side wants to go into the last year. Uh, absolutely. Um, and uh, so I, th- I feel pretty good 
the signals you're getting from both sides. I feel pretty good that they'll get a deal done. I, I think it's going to be 17 games. Um, I think they'll shorten the preseason. I think there's going to be a lot more money given to the retired players. Uh, and I think they will do some things to put the structure of player contracts and off-season workouts that will make the 17 games more amenable to players. But the fact of the matter is adding a 17th game, adding another uh, wild card team, adds a hell of a lot of revenue, and that's the bottom line. It's, there's going to be a lot, of, a lot more money. And then they're going to negotiate the new media deals as soon as they get this done, and that's... You know, the streaming deal is what everybody is going to be watching because we know the TV deals are, are going to be big. But the streaming deal is the new piece of this that's going to be gigantic. And that, I think, is going to be the most interesting thing. Just how much money are they going to get out of the streaming part of it? So post-Super Bowl, besides sleep, I said this before to one other guest, what are you looking forward to? The combine. <laughs> Be, yeah, exactly. Being home for a little bit, probably. Being with my family for a few days. Um, yeah, it, there's no, you know, there's no off-season. I mean, there's, it's literally three weeks from Super Bowl Sunday is, I think, when I go to the combine. So uh, I, you, you gear up for the combine and, you know, they start doing the rules and officiating and all of it. It just starts up right away. Yeah, again. you've really been there through the evolution of this, right? When you started... The NFL was largely a seasonal business. It used to have an off-season. It was we largely a seasonal yes. business, and now they have done a masterful job in turning this into I actually really wrote a story for the Times years ago about the NFL wants to colonize the calendar, mm. and that's that's exactly what they've it's done. It's basically the month of June. There's like a one-month or There's so There's a window. middle of June after mini camps, like the fourth, just after the 4th of July, Bill Belichick once said to me, I don't care what they do with the schedule, just as long as we get those three weeks in July. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, okay, that's pretty much what you got. Yeah, and yeah. that's it. Right? They've it's taken over right. everything else. I mean, there's very little. You just go yeah. right into the next thing. Last question that I have anyway. XFL? Interesting idea? I think Spring it'll be, football? I think it'll be an interesting idea if the NFL, if they can work together so that the XFL can be, A, a developmental league, and B like an experimental league for the NFL, right? Like the NFL needs some place, and they don't have NFL Europe to do it, there's no minor leagues, some place to like work on different rules, officiating kind of stuff. They need a place to develop players, officials, offensive linemen, right? And there's that doesn't exist, and it hasn't existed since NFL Europe yeah. disappeared, and they need that. Yeah, the ability to beta test a lot of things is really, yeah. really important. I mean, I they they are in a position now of having to test things in the preseason, yeah. which, I mean, the preseason is not even a real thing, right? Yeah. You're not even playing with the first-string players, at, but they test rules. They test sometimes, some seasons they'll have, like, an extra official on the field to see if that helps. They need a place where you can test something for an entire season um, at full speed. Um, and and if, if, if the XFL is going to work and be embraced, that's what it needs to be. Cool. Yeah, we spent a lot of time thinking about the Pro Bowl as well. Yeah. Right? And that's certainly a place where you saw some experimentation this right. year. Um, if you're sitting in as the czar of football... What do you do with the Pro Bowl? I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they know what to do with the Pro Bowl. It, I think the, the Pro Bowl, I mean, Roger Goodell has said it out loud. Like, the Pro Bowl drives him crazy, yeah. the lack of competitiveness. 
I don't know what they do with the Pro Bowl ultimately. But the fact of the matter is, listen, you and I may say, like, Pro Bowl, what are they going to do with the Pro Bowl? People watch the Pro Bowl, so it's not going away. People watch the combine. Right. The people watch every year when they show what the numbers are. People watch the Pro Bowl, and you and I may think, like, why are you watching the Pro Bowl? Well, it's... Because it's football. Right. And it people watch better football. better than baseball playoff. A lot of the baseball right. playoff games. It's yeah. Because it's football on a, on a day that there's no other football. That's why people watch it. Cool. LJ, any parting thoughts? Scott, any parting thoughts? No, I mean, really, it's always fascinating to, to hear the thoughts of someone who's been so deeply ingrained in the business and has observed it with the benefit of time and is still looking at it in such a close way. Um, and like I said, uh, you know, I've been a long time admirer of, of, of Judy's work. You're making me sound really uh, old. This no, is, you're not. You're, we're you're basically the same down. age. Okay. Right? So you're really young. But really, you know, so it is really cool to see it and the evolution and um, it's been a lot of fun. I do have one last question. Go, go for it. Um, several coaches in this league now that happen to be women yeah um the evolution of that um where do you think it can go is it becoming more accepted when you hear people behind the scenes uh they've obviously made some pretty big contributions giving one as an assistant coach in the super bowl this year so yeah and uh and the cleveland browns just today announced the hiring of the chief of staff for kevin stefanski the new head coach is a woman mm-hmm. um which that took me aback i gotta be honest um Sure. I mean, I, I, it's only the beginning. Um, and I, I, I did a story on Bruce Arians and his, like, incredible staff with mm. women and minority coaches. And, like, he is basically like a Rooney Rule factory unto himself. Like, he is going to solve the minority coaching crisis if he can by himself. And uh, I, I think, you know, if you get a few more coaches who think like that... Mm. Um, and you think like Kyle Shanahan, yeah. that you can have a real coach, a, a real coach working with players be a woman, yeah. then yes, I think I, I think it's only the beginning. And certainly her success, Katie Sauer's success, yeah. is tremendous for it. We hope at some point it gets to the point where people don't even... Well, it where it's, even not become, uh, it's not a story. Well, look, maybe eventually we'll get to the point where like minority coaches is not even a story, right. but uh, we're, we're a long way from that. But gambling sure. will always be a story. Yeah. Actually, so you brought up the point, where are you? And, and you know, obviously the Rooney Rule has... Commissioner Goodell talked about it in this press conference this week. He even said it's not working. Right. What, what's the solution to this? It's a lot. We could do an hour just on this. Somebody yeah. mentioned right. ownership. That was the um, thing. Yeah, I, I am struck by how dramatically the backslide has happened because they were at eight not that long ago. That was the high water mark. And now. I mean, they've gone three years in a row with only one minority hire. That's abysmal. And they know it. And I don't blame Roger Goodell for this. I know Roger Goodell is troubled by it. I know Art Rooney is troubled by it. The Rooney family is troubled. Uh, I'm not sure what they can do. You know, look, they are not going to mandate who you hire. They can't. I think they will probably expand the Rooney rule to require uh, coordinator positions, um, maybe even position coach positions. Um, maybe they require that for head coaching interviews you have more than one minority candidate interviewed. But until you get owners who recognize that this is important and that uh, it's good for the league, until you get Dan Rooney, I thought Paul Tagley, the former commissioner who just walked by, as a matter of fact, 
said it really well the other day. Like, maybe we need another Dan Rooney. I mean, there, there aren't many of those. Uh, but but you need somebody. The, the one thing that Dan Rooney did, which I, I think might be missing, is um, Dan Rooney would get on the phone with his fellow owners. Now, of course, he had the be- the standing to do it. He had gravitas. That he was Dan Rooney, right? Um and he would get on the phone and twist their arms and sell them on, have you looked at this guy? Have you talked to this guy? You should talk to this guy. I think this guy would be good. Okay, you're going to talk to that guy? Like, he would twist their arms. I don't think anybody's doing that in the NFL, and I'm not sure anybody has the standing to do it. Like, who calls and gets, can get Jerry Jones to pick up the phone and listen to the spiel? Uh, there aren't many of those people. When, when we lost Dan, you know, you lost the biggest advocate, and I... I think that's a big piece of what's happening. I, I would agree. You know, and you see it, and like, so I, I would I would argue, or at least it could be argued, that the Miami Dolphins are mm-hmm. Have the done a good job. in the space right yeah, now, right? right? Can Steve Ross pick up the phone and play that right. role? And, and and no disrespect to Steve Not Ross at all, at all uh, but no, of course not. He, he's a relatively new owner, right. for one thing. He's team a, that hasn't succeeded. Relatively yeah. inexperienced over. Right. He, he does not have a long track record of success. I don't know if there's any owner, even the ones with great success, even Robert Kraft, even a Jerry Jones, even the people who have these really tremendously well-run franchises, can they really call up another owner? The way the league is now, it's a different, it's a different bunch of owners. You've got newer owners who have bought into the league because they have made their money elsewhere. They all think they know what they're doing. They all think they can apply the business practices that they use to become really rich somewhere else to the NFL. As we all know, that really works. But it's hard to tell those people who are self-made billionaires that they need to change their ways. And Dan Rooney was the one person who had the gravitas and the history behind him to say, hey, look, you know, I hired Mike Tomlin. Nobody had any idea who Mike Tomlin was. And here we are. Once again, uh, Judy Batista, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, your Pleasure. insight is tremendous. Uh, you know, and your sense of looking at this through the, the prism of history is really invaluable to the league and to everybody who follows you. Thank sure. you. Right. My That's pleasure. Fantastic. Great. Cool. Pleasure one, being here. Once again, this was another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast from Radio Row. For Joe Favorito, LJ Holmgren, and Tom Cerny, we'll see you down the road. I'm going to do this again. <laughs> what just happened there? Yeah, I'm, looking, I'm looking at Scott and mentioned his name. <laughs> All right. Once again, this is another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast from Radio Row. For Joe Favorito, Scott Rosner, LJ Holmgren, and Tom Cerny, and our absentee host, Tom Richardson, we'll see you down the road.